0: to look at this second letter that Paul wrote to the struggling church at Corinth in verse 13. Now for a recompense, reciprocity, a return in the same, now for a recompense in the same, I speak unto you as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Enlarged means to make wide. So My title is, Open Your Hearts. Open your hearts. As you remember, there's tension between Paul and this church. And Paul has done what's called the great digression beginning in chapter 2. You remember, he said, when his spirit had no rest in Troas, because he found not Titus his brother, he left and went to Macedonia. From that point, he digresses from giving an explanation as to why he had a change of plans and travel, which he was being criticized by the church at Corinth. They were saying he was fickle. He digresses all the way to chapter 7, verse 5, where you can see he takes up that subject again. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. So in this section that we've been looking at, Paul is defending his ministry and his integrity for the sake of the good of the church at Corinth. We've said multiple times, this is distasteful to him. He doesn't like talking about his ministry. And even when he glories... So that they would have somewhat to answer them that glory and appearance, what does he talk about? His sufferings as an apostle, which he just did in chapter 6 as he gives a long list of his hardships. And then he draws this conclusion in this last portion of a defense of his integrity. He says to the church, open your hearts, of course, to Paul. And so the outline we look at this morning is Paul's appeal first for an open heart. Secondly, why was their heart closed to Paul? Because apparently it was. And then thirdly, what is then the way that they were to open their heart again to Paul? Of course, we could make the application to ourselves this morning. Is your heart closed to one another as a Christian? What may be the reason it's closed as we look at this text? And then what God is telling us to do, to open our hearts, enlarge the heart of flesh that He's given us, so that it's open to receive one another in Christ Jesus. So first, the appeal. Paul starts with an expression, verse 11, he didn't use many times, it speaks about his passion and his love for the church. Oh, ye Corinthians, like when David said, "Oh, Absalom, my son. So Paul is appealing from the depth of his heart and says, our mouth is open to you. It's enlarged. Our heart is enlarged. It's wide open. You are straightened in us, or not straightened in us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. So these are two contrasting words. To have a heart wide open or a heart that's straightened and closed or cramped is the word. Now children, think of a place in your house that's just cramped. There's no space there. Don't say it out loud. Your mom may not like you revealing that. Let's say under your bed, you're playing hide and seek and you want to get under the bed and you look under it and there's just boxes. Partly your toys, partly boxes that mom and dad use because there's no space anywhere else in the house. You can't get in. Well, then you go to the hall closet, the notorious hall closet. And you open it and and you can't get in. There's no space or room in the closet. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's closet, the closet of his heart, is wide open to the Corinthians. He's demonstrated that through the hardships he suffers on their behalf. See, Paul suffered great affliction for the gospel's sake, which means he did it for their sake because he was bringing the gospel to the nation's. He uses the perfect tense with the word mouth and heart, which means a completed past action, as you know, with ongoing results. One time in the the past, his mouth, his heart was enlarged to the church at Corinth. When it was established, he loved them, and he's been loving them ever since. He's wide open. He is calling on the church at Corinth to enlarge and open their hearts to him, the apostle. He's calling them to be reconciled. Jesus said in John 15, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now Jesus applies that to his own life and redemption through his death, but we could apply that to Paul. In a different way, Paul was laying down his life for his friends, demonstrating his love for the church at Corinth. Whatever they were criticizing him for, which was unfounded, Paul had shown through his life his sacrificial work, his great love for the church. But the church had closed off their affection for Paul, and now he's calling them as his children. That's an expression Paul used often in his letters to churches. He was like a father to children because in 1 Corinthians 4, he said he had begotten them through the gospel. Their conversion was through the instrumentality of Paul's ministry. So he saw them like children. There was a a beloved relationship he had with the churches that God had used him to establish and found. Our first application, I think it's clear, is this. Paul is expecting a warm and affectionate relationship to exist between ministry and congregation. And God expects that kind of relationship to exist today. Now You may think that's rather challenging, and certainly it is. But think about Paul. Now, for the church, they only had to have one person to work with. One person with all his quirks and whatever his personality problems were, which ministry has as many as congregation. And Paul had to love a whole city of people, right? Yeah. All the personality traits all there, but Paul was wide open. Now we see this taught in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, which was read this morning in our scripture reading, where Paul says, Now we exhort you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. The word know means to have regard for, and the word esteem means to count them or consider them this way. Highly in love is over the top, exceedingly love them. Why? And that's a good question. I mean, as I say this, I'm thinking, why, Lord? Right? First, because of their work's sake. It's the work that they do. It's the work that God calls ministry to do. What is it? They labor. The word means to work to the point of exhaustion. Now, the work of ministry is not so much physical exhaustion, it can be, but it's mentally and spiritually exhausting. It's labor, it's toilsome, it's hard. Now, many of you work hard and you know what hard work is. But laboring in the Word of God and laboring among you, the flock, is toilsome work for ministry. So, esteem them very highly in love because they labor. Secondly, they are over you in the Lord important qualification, in the Lord as it relates to the Word of God and what the Word of God says, this oversight, this leadership, this presiding over is to be. These two words are used together in 1 Timothy five seventeen, where Paul teaches Timothy. Let the elders that rule well among you be counted worthy of double honor. Okay, Let the elders that rule, that's the word for over you, that rule well among you, that labor among you, that's the second word used in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let them be counted worthy of double honor, especially them that labor in the word and doctrine. So he uses the same combination of words. They rule, they labor, they are over you, in the Lord, according to the Lord, and their work is like an occupation. It's like a career, if you will. It's their labor. It's what they're to give themselves to. So they labor among you, they're over you in the Lord, and thirdly, they admonish you. Now the word admonish means to reprove, warn, caution. Paul would tell Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, warn, with all long suffering and doctrine. Now if the ministry in this relationship is to reprove, Rebuke and to exhort with complete patience. And that means you are to what? Receive the rebuke, receive the reproof, and receive the exhortation. They admonish you. And then to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So it's their work's sake, but secondly, the reason is it's for you. Did you notice that in every one of the three pieces of the work that Paul says the ministry is doing. They labor among you, over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. In some sense, when you esteem the ministry very highly, you are esteeming and loving yourself. Is that not true? Just like the husband in Ephesians 5, when he loves his wife, he's loving himself. When you esteem the ministry who's doing everything for your sake, then, for your sake... The benefit of the ministry comes your way. What happens when the ministry is not doing well? What happens when the ministry is not functioning well? What happens when the ministry is not being prayed for? Then it affects you if we understand what Paul is saying. So when Paul, awkwardly as it must have been, awkwardly it is for a minister to tell you your responsibility toward the ministry... He was doing it for their sake. Because when this relationship is restored, what's the upshot? The church comes back to the apostle, which in Paul's sake, he was the apostle of the word. The word of God was being deposited at that time through the preaching and the pen of the apostle. That's over. It's not being done anymore through ministry today. But with Paul, if you push away Paul, you push away the gospel. You push away the word of God because it was coming Through him and the apostles, which is the foundation of the church. So it was not in the best interest of the church not to be reconciled to Paul, to keep their heart closed off to Paul. So Paul, in an act of love toward the church, called them to open their hearts wide toward Paul. Now, this relationship between ministry and congregation is not by default, it's something that must be worked at, developed with reciprocity. It's a two-sided coin, isn't it? As we pray for one another, and as you pray for the ministry, you are then, in a sense, praying for your own spiritual good because the Word is being ministered to the congregation, first by the ministry, and then to one another. To one another. So Paul makes his appeal. It's the imperative mood. When he says, Be enlarged. this is God's command, open your hearts wide to one another. And we work on this relationship, which is for the good of the church between ministry and congregation. Number two, after his appeal, we want to ask the question, why were their hearts closed to Paul? Now, I don't know about you, but I love the Apostle Paul. How can you not love this man? Reading about what he did and his love for people, his tenderness, his gentleness, his being like a father. In one case, he said, I, I, I was nurturing or nourishing you like a mother does her children. I charged you as a father does his children. He loved these people. Now, of course, we've never met the Apostle Paul. But when you read him and how God used him, how could you not love him? What was wrong at the church that their own bowels... Were closed off. Now that word can be used in three ways. Literally, it's your human gut, right? Figuratively, it means a, a real deep place like the bowels of the earth. But used here, metaphorically, it means the innermost seat of your emotions. So what was closed off? Their affection for Paul. Their affections were closing off, cramped, like the hall closet. Paul couldn't get in. They didn't want him in and they shut off their affections from Paul. Why would anybody do that toward Paul? The reason? Verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked to unbelievers. There's the answer. Paul now gives an imperative. He's going to start to help the church overcome their closed heart to Paul, which would then be what? Closed heart to one another. We see that in the first book. Strife, envy, vainglory. There's no love at Corinth. There's no love for one another. They're shutting their own hearts off from each other. And Paul, which means they have shut their hearts off to God. Right? When our love gets cold horizontally, what does that mean? It's cold vertically. That's right. Write that down. It's always the problem. So he gives an imperative, and then he clarifies the imperative to tell us what he means with five rhetorical questions. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers, because, here's the clarification, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, what communion hath light with darkness, what concord hath Christ with Belial, an expression here of Satan, not in the Old Testament for the idol, Baal, Belial, but here an expression towards Satan. What part hath a believer with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God, which is the church in this context, with idols? Five rhetorical questions, which the answer is none, nada, no fellowship, no participation, to explain being unequally yoked. Now, the the biggest application usually here is that of marriage, and that fits, but this is much wider than that. Paul doesn't have marriage in mind here specifically, but it certainly fits, right? So what does it mean to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Does that mean when you work on a project every day, five days a week at work with an unbeliever, that you're being unequally yoked? Now, if it does, some of you are going to have to get new jobs starting tomorrow. Does it mean when you're educated alongside of unbelievers Yes, even in a Christian school, you understand that, right, parents? Even in a Christian school or a Christian college, there are unbelieving people there. Is that not good? Is that wrong? What about in athletic events like sporting teams and things like that? I mean, it's almost impossible not to unless we move into the hills and become isolated. Well, Paul said in the first letter, chapter 5, he said, I have written unto you an epistle that you would not keep company with fornicators, yet not altogether. With fornicators, extortioners, covetous, idolaters. For you must needs go out of the world. So Paul doesn't mean no association. Keep yourself locked up. Don't go in, 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 into the world. It's not what he means. What does he mean then? A yoke, as you know, was an instrument to put on two animals so that they could enable them to plow together for a common purpose. Paul is borrowing from Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, and that's the one I'll use. God forbade and said, Thou shalt not plow together the ox and the ass. You can't hook them up under one yoke. The ass is the donkey. Now, why? There are a couple of reasons. Some suggest symbolically that the pagan culture around them often mixed things like mingled seed or Mixing an ox with a donkey together and plowing so they should stay away from that. They are a consecrated congregation or nation so they should keep themselves apart even from the practices of the pagans. That could be true. But just practically speaking, it's not good for the donkey. I mean, a donkey could die plowing alongside of an ox. And you certainly will not accomplish your purpose the ox is a much stronger animal than a donkey. Their pace is different, and their eating habits are totally different. You know, the ox chews the cud. He has four stomachs. He regurgitates and does that winding motion with the jaw, chewing the cud, which means he may be able to go longer without food, but the donkey has to eat much quicker. It, it doesn't work, and therefore they cannot plow a straight line or parallel rows. But Paul obviously takes this for a spiritual application. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the clarification is used with five words almost interchangeable. Fellowship, communion, concord, part, and agreement. All expressing joint participation, close communion, or even intimacy on some level. Now what Paul is saying is these two realms or spheres are different realms of influence, right? You have righteousness like Christ, believer, temple of the living God or church. Righteousness happens in the light because of who Christ is through a believer's life that dwells in the church together. Unrighteousness, lawlessness... Happens in the darkness. You were sometimes darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Light and darkness do not coexist. It's under the influence of Belial or Satan through unbelievers who worship idols. And the words in the middle expressed a joint participation, a coming together. Now, how would that work? Only if darkness is influencing the light. There's nothing in darkness. There's nothing in an unbeliever that could draw him to the light. You have the instrument that gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The gospel. There's nothing in an unbeliever that will draw him to the light. There's something still in you that will draw you to the darkness through the influence. So the question is, With being unequally yoked, are you being influenced by unbelievers, like a social media influencer, whose whole purpose is to persuade powerfully, to draw your affections to a product so you'll purchase it, right? So that's the question with being unequally yoked. What is influencing your life? What is capturing your affections? It was their affections that were shut off from Paul, why? because their affections were captured by the pagan neighbors of idolatry still rampant in Corinth it was a city of idolatry and Paul points out in 2 Corinthians 12:21 what was still going on in part in the church some had not repented of uncleanness fornication and lasciviousness impure motives impure use of body unbridled lust which calls what to shut off Paul from their affections? Why? Because their affections were not being drawn by Christ from afar, but were being drawn by their neighbors from very close. What does it mean to be unequally yoked? Then? Well, it goes beyond marriage. It goes beyond unbelieving friends, and goes right to the television you're watching, to the books you could be reading to the social media you're doing. See, it's not so easy as saying, well, you don't do that, and you can't do that, and you got to stop that. No, the question, beloved, is it capturing your affections? Is it drawing you away from God, which will then calls you in the church to do what? Draw you away from loving the church. Draws you out. Draws you away from the service of God to the point where you just don't want to do it anymore. Why? You are not straightened in us, you are straightened in your own affections because you're unequally yoked with people, with things, with activities that are drawing you away from God. What's influencing you this morning? What's capturing your heart? See, there's the point in which you should say, I think I'm unequally yoked with that thing with that person or with that activity, whatever it is that's drawing us. Jesus told the Pharisees in John eight thirty seven, says, I know you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. My word hath no place in you. And there's the hall closet again, kids. Jesus says, when you look in the heart of a Pharisee, which he could do, he said it was like a hall closet. It is packed, full of stuff. And the word won't penetrate. In the same context, John 8, he tells them why. You are your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. I have read and quoted that text so many times, I never saw that he didn't say the works of your father you will do. He said the desires of your father you will do. How do you do a desire? You don't do a desire. You desire a desire. You lust a lust. Because Jesus is pointing to the root issue. All the stuff packed in the hall closet can be defined as desire. Desire. And so you won't receive the word because your heart is packed. Full of your own corrupt pleasures and your corrupt desires. Now, what's happening to the Corinthian church that's drawing them away through being unequally yoked to uncleanness, lasciviousness, and fornication, and other vices? They were being captivated by deceitful, corrupt desires. Those things the Bible tells us to fight against and to put away, which means sometimes we have to put away the yoke we've created that's causing us to shut off our affection to one another where there's no love. Listen to Proverbs four twenty-three. The proverb says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it, the heart, are the issues of life. Issues means the streams, like flowing out of a body of water. Now, in, in, in nature, tributaries... Feed into a large body of water. But in your heart, everything is coming out of your heart. The streams are all flowing out. All the pathways of your life are flowing out of your heart. So the the proverb says, guard your heart above all guarding, is what the word means. Above everything you could guard. All the valuables that you guard. And that you keep safe. Let this be the guarding above every guarding. That you could possibly think of. It's your heart. Because out of it the streams of your life will flow. How important is that? Young people. Now how would you do that? With well, just two or three verses earlier. The father's instructing his children. And the implication is he's doing in Proverbs with the word of God. And what does he say? Keep my words at the center of your heart. Keep your heart with all diligence. See the connection? Let the Word of God penetrate. Open your heart to the Word of God. If they open their heart to Paul, what are they opening to? The Apostle's Gospel in the Apostle's Word, which he was giving by inspiration in that time. Verbally, he was giving it and he was writing it. He was depositing it for the church. We have it today. Open your hearts to the Word of God. Let them be central. And then you'll have the power to fight against yokes that sometimes are created inadvertently, sometimes purposely, yokes of inequality with unbelievers or things, influences that affect us, that have the power over us to draw us away from the love of God and the love of one another, and then out of that. Come all the issues, the streams of life. See, beloved, the problem is sometimes we just get spiritually lazy, don't we? See, we become new creatures in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God. And and, and that happened gloriously, and for a while your heart was open. And then what happens to us? Well, I'm just a bit disappointed, a bit discouraged, a bit disheartened. I didn't know it would be this hard why not? What word could God have possibly used more stronger than the word agonizomai? Agony, when He said, fight the good fight of faith. What image comes in your mind when you hear the word fight, war, kill, sin? See, the images of the Bible and the images of Christ Himself, the words He used told us this is a struggle. If you're going to be disyoked from someone, separated from someone, which God calls you to, or something, it's going to be hard. It's going to require vigilance and fight. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it far from you. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better to enter the life halt and maimed with a missing arm and a missing eye than to... Have your whole body cast into hell. What's he saying? The fight demonstrates the destination. Where there is no fight, where you keep your eyes and keep your arms and you love sin, what's the end? Eternal destruction. But where there's a fight against sin, you have the proof and assurance, heaven is your home. Now if you pluck out your eye... It means you're no longer able to see what was causing the offense for the eye. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying remove the object that's causing the uncleanness, the lasciviousness, the fornication, and the yoking, which is unequal. Get rid of it. That's hard. Yes, I can't can't sugarcoat that. It'll be hard. But it'll be rewarding. It'll produce love. When your right hand is removed, you can no longer do or touch the thing you were doing or touching, right? What's Jesus saying? Get rid of the thing that's causing the right hand to be offended, to stumble. That's not easy. That's difficult because there, there's a war going on in your soul at the level of what you want. It's what you desire. And so Peter said, this what the apostle said. And the Corinthian church is giving away to false apostles. They're giving way to what they say against Paul because they like what they're saying. It's appealing. They're like social media influences. I mean, they're just scrolling the phone all day with these false apostles because they like what they see. Paul, we don't like what you say. You're just warning. You're always rebuking. Paul's really the one loving them by telling them the truth. And the false apostles will tell you, yeah, God wants you to be happy. You can live how you want. And there are many people saying that today. So what's Paul calling for? What's he saying? We're unequally yoked when we're being influenced and being drawn away by something that we can cut off or we can fight against. Sometimes you can't cut it off, right? If you married an unbeliever, you can't divorce them according to 1 Corinthians 7. You can repent and confess it. Now you got to fight. Because the plowing there is not going to be together in the kingdom. You're likely going to be led away with the plowing of the spouse who doesn't love Jesus unless you're vigilant, unless you're fighting in your own spiritual warfare, unless you're guarding your heart with all diligence. So some things you can't put away, some things you can, but in all cases, we are resisting the influence because these things are in a different realm of influence, and in the middle there's this joint participation. And the only way we can jointly participate is if they draw us away after their affections. There's nothing in them to be drawn to have affection for Christ. Something they need, but something they don't yet have. So that's the reason they're unequally yoked. And so Paul says in the negative way, what you need to do is separate from that yoke, cut it off, and then do what? Well, in verse 16 he says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols, because, here's the next section, you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate. There's the negative application Cut off the yoke, sever the yoke, be separate from that person or thing that's causing the influence and capturing your heart. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So what then is the power of separation? I get it. There's nothing here that was over our heads. I I get what you're saying. God wants us to cut off the influence, separate. What's the power to do that, right? To separate means to establish boundaries. Now you could have a nice boundary in your backyard called a chain link fence, But you can look right through the fence and see what all the neighbors are doing and still love it. Staying in your backyard, you can be hanging over the fence, participating all the while, you got a boundary. A boundary alone will do you no good. We understand that, don't we, parents? You can seclude them. Want to do that. Keep all influence. Talking about influence, let's keep all influences out. One day, the influence is going to come. At least they'll be exposed to it. No amount of boundaries alone is going to help them. You've got to speak to the heart. Prepare them for the influences. You've got to prepare your own heart for the influences. No boundary is going to shut off their affections for what's going on on the other side of the fence. And they will one day see and be very close to what's going on on the other side of the fence, unless you just move out of society, keep them at home, and say, well, We're just not going to ever expose anything. Yeah, there's some things we don't need to be exposed to, but the world is not one we can prevent, right? You're the salt of the earth. You're a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. We shouldn't be hidden. We shouldn't live out in the woods. Unless, of course, you just like to buy land and live out in the woods. That's fine. But as far as segregating for the purpose of influence, right? I've mean, i thought about it several times. That's not what God is after. What then is going to give us the power of separation? Having these promises. It's the power of what God has said. So negatively, separate, cut off the yoke. Positively, The promises of God empower us in such a way that with these promises, our hearts are enlarged again. Our hearts open up. Why? Because now they're opening up to what God has said. And what has He said to you, church? He said, I will dwell with you. I will walk with you. And I will be your God and you shall be my people. Wherefore, be separate. And I will be a father unto you, and you will be my sons and daughters. So God is telling us what He is for us and what we will be to Him. And in that relationship through promises, we find the power to be on the other side of the fence but not participating in the influences because we have a superior power that they know nothing of. It's the power of who God is. Now the language, when he says, you are the temple of the living God, first he's referring to the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he's already done that in the first letter. When he said, what? No, you not. You're the temple of the living God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. There in the context, it's not the body, it's the church. Chapter 6 of the first epistle, similar wording, he's talking about your individual body. Okay. So the church, the language that Paul is using is New Covenant language. This has been his context from the beginning of the great digression in chapter 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, Church of the living God, Spirit of the living God, Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. That's new covenant language. And what does Paul say? God has made us able ministers of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Not of the letter which kills, but of the Spirit which gives life. Or life. So when the Spirit sovereignly decided to show up in Corinth, how did he come? He came through regeneration and he came through the message of Paul in the gospel. And what happened? The New Covenant is establishing local churches. I am amazed at the emphasis that God places on the body of Christ through local churches. It's all over the Bible. The problem is we have lowered our view of what God is doing through the ecclesia. That's a problem. We're not excited. We're not thrilled at what He's doing. So Often we're more thrilled about what He's not doing or in terms of what we're doing. And so the language here, you are the temple of the living God. And Paul is saying, when the new covenant came to you in Corinth, it came and it came into your heart. He took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and you became a new covenant church. Where people covenant together to be a certain kind of thing to one another as they receive and draw down on the love of God. That's the first thing. God has made a promise or promises. He's made it to the new covenant church. New Testament church. We're living in the church age. And God is working powerfully through churches to build us up and to be witnesses in the community. Secondly, these promises that God has made, I will dwell, I will walk, I will be your God. He's made these promises for the power of separating. That's why He uses the word wherefore. I'll dwell, I'll walk, I'll be your God. Wherefore, the power of those promises enable us to separate in a God-glorifying way where God gets glory in the separation and He doesn't get just a bunch of legalists. Right? Because the heart is receiving promises. Now, how do these promises help? These promises are... Revealing something about God. And so perfecting holiness through promises happens negatively. We're purifying, getting rid of the filthiness of flesh and spirit. That's just the whole person, the body, sins, and the internal sins. And then we're perfecting, accomplishing holiness. How do the promises fit within that? Well, listen to how Paul says this is to happen through the renewing of the mind. See, we're renewing our minds on promises and on who God is. Ephesians 4:22, you remember Paul says to the church that you put off concerning the former lifestyle or conversation. The old man which is corrupt according to deceitful desires. What is the old man problem? It's what he loves. It's what he wants. So Paul says, the old man, along with the old things, need to be put away. How? Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Renewing means renovation. It's what you do to your home. You build a new home. We'll call that a new creature in Christ. It's Wonderful. All new things. Old things gone. New things are there. Now immediately, if you don't start, in a sense, renewing, it decays to the point where you just bulldoze the thing, right? Or it gets really bad before it's too late, and you have to do some major, major work. Some hard, painful, difficult work. But if you start renewing right away, it stays new-like, right? So with the promises of God, with the knowledge of God, we put off the old man with his corrupt, deceitful desires. That They're deceitful. We're so easily deceived, thinking that will give us joy or that will give us pleasure. So renewing then, we put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Holiness. Cleanse yourselves, the text says, from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Put off the old man. Put on the new man or perfect holiness through what? Renewing your mind in the promises and knowledge of who God is. What did he say to you? I'll dwell with you. I'll walk with you. I'll be your God. Now, what do you think God expects that experience to be? A bad experience? An unwanted experience? Do you think it's supposed to be a worse experience than walking with an unbeliever because your affections are drawn after what they're doing? Do you think it's supposed to be a worse experience or superior? And that's the whole point. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be yoked to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3.10 and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, after the image of Christ. How are we renewed? How are we renovated? How are we changed? How are we transformed? How do we pursue holiness? Renewal, renewal, renewal. Now, the problem, again, is sometimes I'm just spiritually lazy. I just, you know, I don't have time for renewal. But how much time do you have to pursue all the things you're pursuing? What are you giving your time and energy to? Something. And whatever it is, it's somewhere on that pathway. It's because you think, you expect, it's going to deliver on your expectation for happiness. Just Check that for yourself. You just write, I don't care what it is. Education, job, career, marriage, retirement, you think, you expect, it's going to deliver on your expectation of fulfillment. Therefore, I don't have time for renewal. All the while, the renewal is designed to deliver truly on your expectation for joy and happiness in Christ. And we're so deceived. We don't believe it. You don't believe it. I don't believe it. Just Take account what you're going to do next week. In your own life, I'll either show you, I believe this. I don't believe it. In fact, I don't know why you're here if you don't believe it. Well, it's because my dad keeps making me. Okay, that's good. Things can change. Either this is true, or we need to get out now. I am not going to keep giving my life to you people and preaching if this is not true. Paul said that. He said, I won't do it again. If I have fought with beasts at Ephesus and advantage of me not, if the dead rise not, he said, I'm quitting. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communication corrupt good manners. In other words, evil yokes corrupt good habits and cause us to live what? For the day. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection. The infidel does not believe in an afterlife. So all they do is now. All is packed into now. When we start living that way, we have been deceived. We have been deceived. God has promised us, and the power of the promises is the power of holiness. As we look, as we see, as we behold, all things are new. Remember, in 517, that is an imperative, something we're to obey. We have been made new creatures by grace, and now we're to see things differently The promises of who God is that empowers us then to live in a new way. When we close our eyes to holiness and the knowledge of God, we are shutting our hearts to one another. And what happens in the church, it becomes like the hall closet. I mean, they kept coming to church. They were there probably every Sunday. But it was all about them. It's all about me. We need to experience the power of what Jacob experienced when he wrestled with the angel. You remember that? He actually won the, the wrestling match, amazingly. He wrestled with God and he won. He had power with God. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel because he had power with God. And what was his power? You know, not, Nothing that we're talking about is, is easy stuff, right? This, this is difficult. This is spiritual warfare. What was his power? It was the power of prayer, Hosea tells us. He wrestles, he wrestles. And he wins. Because what happens, the strength of Christ is perfected through weakness. And what was Jacob's weakness? How did he express his weakness? I will not let you go until you bless me. His weakness was expressed through prayer. You want to know how weak you are? How much do you pray? You want to know how proud you are and I am? How much do you pray? He was so needy and bankrupt and helpless, he latched on and said, I will not let you go, God, until you bless me. And God said, you win. That's what we need in the church today. People who are so bankrupt that they realize, I can't do what he's saying. I can't be unequally yoked. My affections are all over the place. My emotions are all over the place. I can't do anything unless God help me. Therefore, I'm down praying. That's the first step. And I'm looking to the promises that tell me, this is what God is going to be for me. This is what God is going to do for me. And I believe it. Now I move out in obedience. You see, obedience comes from a theological platform that says, God is this. God said this. God will do this. Therefore, I act in obedience. That's how grace works. Grace doesn't mean in obedience that I'm not going to do anything until God moves me. It means God said something, God did something, God is something for me. Therefore, on the basis of that, I'm acting in grace. He's the supplier. He's the source. And now, I am what I am by the grace of God. And then finally, the power of God's promises is the power of participation in this holy work, holiness called the church. The church is the temple of the living God. The church has a purpose, and if we're all unequally yoked, what happens? The church doesn't fulfill the great purpose that God is doing through it. Why? I I just don't have time, you know? That's not my thing. That's not what I enjoy. I got life to live. You have been rescued from yourself and your own life, so you would not live for yourself, but unto Him which died. For you and for me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus gave his life for me. Why? So that now, right here, right now, we could be on the pathway of holiness, leading to future glory, where there'll be joy and pleasure forever. So, how does this mean? How does this show us that this is a, a participation together? Again, chapter one or chapter seven, verse one. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us, don't pass over those two words, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. And then implied, let us together perfect holiness. One translation from the Greek to English I read, the Greek said, holy togetherness, holy togetherness you are the temple of the living God. And God has said to you as a church and to churches all over the planet, He has said this. He said, I'm with you. I'll dwell with you. I'll be your God for the purpose of holiness. And holiness magnifies God and shows Him to be superior to all idols because through knowing God, we find a superior joy and pleasure in Him that leads us to participate in something That we will not do when we're yoked together with affections and influences outside of God. And so closing, just let me quote chapter 2 of Ephesians, which speaks of this great purpose. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Foundation, the word of God, apostles and prophets. Christ is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone of the building is the reference point to the rest of the building. A reference is something you is a source for information to, to acquire something. Jesus is the source of what? Every other stone that's put in the building. For what purpose? In whom the building fitly framed together is growing as a holy temple by the Spirit or unto the Lord. Holy temple. Old Testament language, referring to what? New Testament church. How is this church growing? In whom, that is in the chief cornerstone, we're being built on the Word or the knowledge's promises. So we're coming in as stones, building together to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Why? Because now our affections are being drawn inwardly and upwardly to God by the Spirit, which then empowers us to be together in this holy building project of God for which if we're yoked, we will not be. Have you not experienced that in your own life? I have. When did I become cold like an iceberg? When were my affections drawn away from church and God? When my affections were drawn by creation or some other thing that yoked me. Right? We're fitly framed together and we're growing as a holy temple to the Lord in whom also you are being built together as a habitation of God by the Spirit. There it is. What's God's aim in dwelling, walking, and being your people and your Father for the church is that you would be a dwelling place for God. Why? Unto Him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world that in. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We confess how easy it is to be unequally yoked, if not with unbelieving people than with unbelieving influences that draw our hearts and affections. And Lord, we wonder why we've become cold, we wonder why we're aloof to the Word, we wonder why the Word has no interest to us, because we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Lord, you alone can give those desires. You have, when we've become new creatures in Christ, and now we can stir those affections for you by coming back to the Word and crying out. To you, as Jacob did, Lord, we will not stop praying until you bless us, to you show us, to you strengthen us through the word, to you reveal the promises that give us encouragement, the promises that give us the power of separation, the promises that give us the power of holy togetherness. Lord, that your purpose is not our own. Your will, not our wills, may be accomplished. We know, Lord, how weak and sinful we are. And we thank you that in Christ, no amount of holiness that we attain to, no amount of growth can contribute to our salvation or righteousness. We've been made perfectly righteous by the blood of the Lamb forever. And now out of that righteousness, we turn to you and seek to obey you and to walk in paths of righteousness for your namesake and ask you to empower this church to live with a greater awareness of your purpose for holiness through the church as we love you and then seek to love one another and care for one another and relate to one another in a way that brings us joy, brings you glory, and builds up the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray that for other churches, Lord, all over this planet. May they too as well live out the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant church in the age we're living in for the honor and glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.